I'm Dr. Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com, and you're watching Masterclass with Masterjohn. We are today in our sixth in a series of lessons on the system of energy metabolism. And today we're looking at the reaction catalyzed by isocitrate dehydrogenase, which is the first step within the citric acid cycle that involves a decarboxylation reaction. Ketogenic diet has neurological benefits. Why do we have to eat such an enormous amount of food? A decarboxylation reaction is a reaction where we take the carbon in the food we eat and we release it as carbon dioxide, which we exhale through our breath. And that's really important because ripping apart those bonds is what allows us to harvest high energy electrons that can be taken to the electron transport chain to be used to synthesize ATP. And so this is also the first major energy generating step in the citric acid cycle as well. Now, this decarboxylation reaction is unique among decarboxylation reactions in that it does not require thiamine. And it doesn't require thiamine because of some of its unique features that we'll talk about later in this lesson. And the reason that we're gonna talk about them in detail is because this stunning fact that this enzyme has found a way to make the decarboxylation reaction practically happened by itself is what allows us to bypass the need for thiamine here. And the fact that in one of the two decarboxylation reactions of the citric acid cycle, we can bypass the need for thiamine, that means that when we eat foods that themselves don't require thiamine to enter the citric acid cycle, such as fat, that we have a much lower need for thiamine than when we eat foods that themselves require thiamine just to get into the citric acid cycle, such as carbohydrate. And the fact that carbohydrate requires twice as much thiamine as fat is the basis for really important nutritional implications. For example, it's the basis for why a high carbohydrate diet increases your need for thiamine. And it's also the basis for why people with thiamine deficiency or other problems with thiamine-dependent enzymes may get neurological benefits from eating a high-fat, low-carbohydrate, low-protein diet known as a ketogenic diet. In the course of this lesson, we will also see why the enzyme aconitase was so important when it catalyzed the conversion of citrate to isocitrate. What seemed like a relatively tedious detail of a hydroxyl group moving from one carbon to another is actually what has enabled us to bypass the need for thiamine at this step in the citric acid cycle. It's also what allows us to use this step to not only burn food for energy, but also to provide an entry and exit point in the citric acid cycle that allows us to interconvert amino acids. And as we talk about that, we'll also see one of the main needs for vitamin B6 in the body, 
and we'll see some insights into diagnostic tests that we can use to look at our vitamin B6 status or to look at our liver health. So let's start this discussion by briefly reviewing some of the most important functional groups to our discussion. In organic chemistry, we recognize that all of life is made of organic molecules, which are largely carbon and hydrogen, hydrocarbons. And the other things that are added to those molecules play really important roles in their functions and the reactions that they undergo. And so we call those additional components functional groups. And some of the most common functional groups and the ones that are most important for our discussion today are on the screen. An OH group is a hydroxyl group or an alcohol group. Anything with a hydroxyl group is an alcohol. And if the hydroxyl group is the most important functional group on that molecule, it'll end in OL or all to signify that it's an alcohol. A carbon double bound to an oxygen is a carbonyl group. There's three major types of carbonyl groups. If the carbonyl is situated between two other carbons, it's a ketone. Anything with a ketone carbonyl is called a ketone. If the carbonyl, instead of being in the middle of the molecule, is on the end of the molecule, it'll have a carbon on one side and only a hydrogen on the other. In that case, it's an aldehyde carbonyl, and anything with an aldehyde carbonyl is called an aldehyde. Finally, if the carbonyl is attached to a hydroxyl group, it makes COOH, which is a carboxyl group. Anything with a carboxyl group is a carboxylic acid. One of the most important concepts to master when thinking about decarboxylation reactions is that a carboxyl group is simply the reduced form of carbon dioxide. If you look at carbon dioxide, it's carbon double bound to an oxygen on either side. It is COO or a chemical formula of CO2. If you look at a carboxyl group, it's a carbon double bound to an oxygen and then bound to an OH. But the OH groups, especially the ones that are on carboxylic acids, are very readily ionizable in solution. And that's because oxygen is very electronegative, meaning it holds on to electrons very tightly. Hydrogen, on the other hand, is not electronegative at all. So if you have an OH bond, the oxygen is far more electronegative than the hydrogen. That means that it's very polar and it holds onto the electrons much more tightly. So much more tightly that the hydrogen essentially just looks at it and says, really, you call this sharing? And oxygen's like, yeah, you know, this is our electron, but it's just more mine than yours. And the hydrogen is like, really? I'm out of here. And leaves. And because of that, we can simplify the chemical formula to say that it's really COO minus or CO2 minus. And so if you compare CO2 to CO2 minus, all that's different is this extra negative charge that reflects an extra electron on the carboxyl group. Something with an extra electron is reduced. Something that's deficient in electrons is oxidized. So we're looking at the exact same thing, only carbon dioxide is the oxidized form and the carboxyl group is the reduced form.
If a carboxyl group is the reduced form of carbon dioxide, then to decarboxylate something and release that carboxyl group as carbon dioxide requires oxidizing it. And the key oxidizing agent is NAD+. NAD+, will take these electrons, become NADH, and carry those electrons to the electron transport chain. That's really convenient because on the one hand, NAD+, serves as the oxidizing agent that allows us to decarboxylate. On the other hand, NAD+, is the means by which we carry those electrons to the electron transport chain to synthesize ATP. So we're hitting two birds with one stone here. NAD plus needs to do more than simply take away this electron from oxygen. In order to understand why, let's think about why these bonds form in the first place. Every atom has a nucleus with positively charged protons and uncharged neutrons surrounded by shells of electrons. And each shell that layers around the nucleus is further and further away. And most of the atoms that we're talking about have two shells. They have an innermost shell that's always full, and they have a second shell that is their outermost shell. Whatever the outermost shell is, is called the valent shell, and it's always the one that's missing electrons, if any are missing. If atoms are missing valence electrons, they will acquire them by sharing their electrons with another atom. Because they're sharing electrons in their valence shells, those are called covalent bonds. If two atoms share a pair of electrons, then each electron in that pair counts towards both of the atoms and allows them to count their valence shells as full. The number of bonds an atom will form is always equal to the number of electrons missing from its valence shell. So carbon is missing four electrons in its valence shell, and it always makes one, two, three, four bonds. Oxygen is missing two, and so it always makes two bonds. This oxygen here made up one bond with carbon and one bond with a hydrogen that had ionized. Even though that bond isn't there anymore, the electron is still there, and so that electron, which gives the oxygen its negative charge, is the electron that it completes its valence shell. If NAD plus takes that electron away, that oxygen will no longer have a complete valence shell. It will now need to form a second bond. The only atom nearby to do that with is carbon, and the natural thing to do is to form a double bond with carbon. But it can't, because carbon is already engaged in four bonds, and carbon can never make a fifth bond. And so, in order to actually break off the carbon dioxide molecule from this larger molecule, what needs to happen is a second electron needs to be taken away over here. That will then mean that this carbon is no longer sharing that electron, and it will need to form a second bond. Carbon and oxygen will both be in the market for electron sharing, so the natural thing to do will be to form a double bond, and you can see signified by this blue bond that the electron that carbon had been sharing with the rest of the molecule that we don't care about, so we are designating R, has moved over here and is now being shared with oxygen. That breaks apart the carboxyl group from the rest of the molecule, and it also forms the double bond of carbon dioxide, 
and thus that completes the decarboxylation. Although NAD plus is usually the final electron acceptor of a decarboxylation reaction, it's usually not the thing that directly oxidizes the carboxyl group. What I showed you in the last picture is what happens in net. But what happens mechanistically is more complex. What's shown on the screen is the two-step reaction catalyzed by isocitrate dehydrogenase. Isocitrate is oxidized to form oxalosuccinate, which is then decarboxylated to form alpha-ketoglutarate. NAD plus does not oxidize the carboxyl group. It oxidizes the second carbon to take away two hydrogens and two electrons to make NADH plus a hydrogen ion, leaving behind a carbonyl group. Now, this hydroxyl group that's oxidized is the hydroxyl group that had been on the third carbon and was moved to the second carbon by aconitase to isomerize citrate to form isocitrate. Forming a carbonyl at that carbon destabilizes the carboxyl group on the third carbon and cause it, causes it to spontaneously leave the molecule as carbon dioxide, and that's what forms alpha-ketoglutarate. Now, we'll talk about why this happens and why it's significant momentarily, but let's take a brief break to talk about terminology. So first of all, oxalosuccinate can be kind of confusing because Succinate is actually what we form two steps down from this in the citric acid cycle, but we're not there yet. We're forming alpha-ketoglutarate. So why is succinate turning up here? Well, this is called oxalosuccinate because if you were to break apart the molecule right here, if you were to hydrolyze that bond, the four-carbon dicarboxylic acid that would be left over at the bottom would be succinate. The OH group would reconstitute the second carboxyl group of what would be oxalate, a two-carbon dicarboxylic acid. And so, although we're not actually doing that here, we can imagine doing that. And so we can look at this molecule and we can see the top two carbons as being the acyl group that corresponds to oxalic acid and the bottom four carbons as being what would on its own be succinic acid or succinate. Therefore, this is called oxalosuccinate. When we look at alpha-ketoglutarate, what we see is that it's none other than the five-carbon dicarboxylic acid known as glutaric acid or glutarate, but it has a ketone carbonyl at the alpha position. When we call this the alpha carbon, what we mean is that this is the carboxyl group that we care the most about because that's what's reacting downstream and the reactions that follow. Therefore, the carbon next to it is the alpha group. And that's how we call this alpha-ketoglutarate. You can also number the carbons one, two, three, four, five. And when you do that, you would look at the oxygen here and you would call this 2-oxoglutarate. So you'll see some sources sometimes call alpha-ketoglutarate to oxoglutarate. Alpha-ketoglutarate is an example of an alpha-keto acid, and so it's also an example of a 2-oxo acid. Trying to understand 
why introducing the carbonyl at the second carbon destabilizes the carboxyl group at the third carbon requires some mental effort. And in fact, this isn't even usually covered in a biochemistry textbook. But I think it's worth understanding this because this principle is the principle that allows us to get away with this decarboxylation reaction without requiring thiamine. And that is, in turn, the principle that causes us to need more thiamine when we eat more carbohydrate. And as mentioned before, that's extremely relevant to nutritional topics ranging from how nutrients affect our requirements for other nutrients to how we can treat neurological disorders with special diets. So let's spend a few minutes to try to understand this. The principle that destabilizes the carboxyl group is called enol ketone tautomerization. And in order to grapple with this, before we discuss what's on the screen, let's imagine what would happen if we had never moved the hydroxyl group from the third carbon to the second, and we had never oxidized that to form a carbonyl group. Let's imagine what it would be like to try to rip apart this carboxyl group. If we rip it apart, we would have to leave behind an electron because as we stated at the beginning, the carbon dioxide molecule does not have the extra electron that the carboxyl group has. But if we didn't have a means of oxidizing this bond here, and we just ripped off the carboxyl group, we would leave behind a negative charge on this carbon. You very rarely see carbons with negative charges. Why? Because carbons are usually bound to other carbons. And the carbon-carbon bond is a very happy bond. We said before that the electronegativity difference between oxygen and hydrogen makes oxygen hang on to electrons much more tightly than hydrogen and makes hydrogen say, I have so little of this electron, I might as well split. Carbon has the same electronegativity as carbon. There's no electronegativity difference across a carbon-carbon bond. It's completely nonpolar, meaning the electrons are shared completely equally. And so it's a very happy place to be in, to be sharing your electrons with another atom that's not asking any more of you than it's offering. So to rip apart that bond creates instability, not stability. And so it just doesn't work from a thermodynamic perspective. By contrast, look at what we've done here. First of all, when we had citric acid, we had an OH group here, and we moved that OH group up to the second carbon to make isocitrate, and then we oxidized that to form oxalosuccinate and created this carbonyl group here. We could not have done that at the third carbon because a carbonyl group requires a double bond between carbon and oxygen. Had we had the OH group stay at the third carbon as it is on citric acid, 
and we tried to oxidize it to a carbonyl group, we couldn't make that happen because that would require one, two, three, four, five bonds with carbon, and carbon can't engage in five bonds. So moving it to the third carbon allowed us to oxidize it to the carbonyl group. Once we've oxidized it to the carbonyl group, the carbonyl group is now deficient in electrons. If we can anthropomorphize a little bit, imagine yourself as this oxygen. NAD plus just stole its electron. And it came like a thief in the night. It went and the oxygen went Where'd my electron go? But this oxygen is rather mischievous. And as soon as it realizes that it's lost an electron, it begins eyeing itself an electron that it can take. And this electron deficient oxygen eyes this electron rich oxygen that has an extra negative charge. And it pulls on that electron all the way up through the molecule to itself. And we call that acting as an electron sink. Now, if you look at these arrows, they're showing the flow of the electrons. And it kind of looks like the electrons from here are hop, skipping, and jumping this way. It's better to think about the strong, attractive forces of the oxygen pulling them this way. So the first thing that happens is that this bond moves up to this lone pair here. Now, remember that a bond, it actually represents an electron pair. There's one electron that belongs to oxygen, one that belongs to carbon, and they're being shared across this bond. So this oxygen keeps its own electron to itself and takes the electron that carbon had been sharing up to itself, and those two electrons are now this lone pair, and there's only a single bond here. But that means now this carbon has been oxidized and it wants to steal someone else's electron. Furthermore, it has to do something because now it's only engaged in three bonds and it has to engage in four. So this carbon oxidizes this carbon and the bond that represents the pair of electrons shared equally by these two carbons now moves to this position. So this carbon kept its own electron and this carbon took an electron from this one. That makes this double bond here shown in red. Already, you've destroyed the relationship between the carboxyl group and the rest of the molecule. But this carbon is now electron deficient. Well, conveniently, this oxygen has an extra electron. So this lone pair moves into the bonded position. One electron stays with the oxygen and it shares it with carbon. The other electron actually moves to the carbon and they share that pair together. That becomes this red bond of the carbon dioxide molecule. So moving the OH group from the third position in citrate to the second position in isocitrate is what allowed NAD plus to oxidize it in the first part of the reaction catalyzed by isocitrate, isocitrate dehydrogenase to form oxalosuccinate. And the movement of an electron deficient oxygen here is what allowed, allowed the molecule to pull this electron away, form the extra double bond, split apart, 
the carboxyl group from the rest of the molecule and release it as carbon dioxide. Now, we could look at this as destabilizing the carbon dioxide, or destabilizing the carboxyl group, but it's more accurate to say what it's doing is it's creating a stable alternative. Remember that when we talked about what would happen had we not gone through these processes, what would happen is a situation where if we tried to just rip off the carboxyl group, it would be a very unstable molecule. Putting the carbonyl group here has allowed the formation of an enol. The enol is shown here. An enol is not that stable, but it's way more stable than simply having an ionized carbon at this position. And the enol is first formed in an enolate, which is the ionic form of the enol, and the negative charge on this oxygen quickly takes a hydrogen ion from solution to create the OH group that makes it the true enol. An enol is something that has a double bond between two carbons and also has an alcohol group. In chemistry, ene refers to a double bond. A diene has two double bonds. A triene has three double bonds. So an enol has a double bond and also is an alcohol. Enols tautomerize with ketones. A tautomer is a specific form of isomer that is created through switching around a double-carbon-carbon double double bond with a hydrogen. If you look at the ketone, what you see is that the hydrogen takes this pair of electrons to itself and moves down to this carbon. The pair of electrons constituting the second bond between these two carbons moves up to the carbon-oxygen position to make the double bond that becomes the ketone group of alpha-ketoglutarate. So basically all you've done is you've taken the hydrogen, moved it down here, you've taken the double bond, moved it up here. Whenever you swap places with a hydrogen and a double bond, you call that a tautomer. And this tautomerization is a path to the formation of a ketone that goes through the enol, which is not anywhere near as stable as a ketone, but again is far more stable than an ionized carbon at this position. And it's what allows you to get from one place to the other. When you look at an enol ketone tautomerization, as you have with these last two, they will actually be in some equilibrium with one another. This is a reversible reaction. But the ketone form is the overwhelmingly predominant form. Well, well, well over 99% will be alpha-ketoglutarate. So we can simplify this and just say, we formed alpha-ketoglutarate. But if we ignore the fact that we formed an enol first, we ignore the path that got us to the alpha-ketoglutarate. We ignore the fact that we created a position with this electron-deficient oxygen that allowed us to release the carbon dioxide and have something stable that can make its way to the ketone. The reason that the ketone is so much more stable than the enol relates to the relative strength of a double bond between carbons 
and a double bond between a carbon and an oxygen. Although we'd have to show the bonding in a different kind of model that emphasizes the shape and size of the bond to really show it on the screen, we can simplify this and generally see the following. If you have a carbon that's double bonded to another carbon, that carbon also has to be bound to two other things. If we have an oxygen that's double bound to a carbon, it's not bound to anything else. The more bonds that an atom forms with other atoms, the more it needs to accommodate all those bonds. And as it accommodates them, it tries its hardest to space them out as much as possible. When it does that, it has a lot of things going on in that space, and that tends to push it away from the things to which it's bound, because all of those different things are repelling each other to some degree. The oxygen doesn't have that problem because it's not bound to anything else. So the oxygen can get closer to the carbon, and when it gets closer, the bond is shorter, and when the bond is shorter, it's stronger. The fact that a carbon-oxygen double bond is stronger than a carbon-carbon double bond makes the carbon-oxygen double bond more thermodynamically stable. And that's why the ketone overwhelmingly, way more than 99%, predominates in an enol ketone tautomer. And the overwhelming predominance of alpha-ketoglutarate is why the average textbook can ignore all of this and just say that we converted isocitrate to alpha-ketoglutarate. Part of the reason that that's a legit simplification is that all of this happens inside the enzyme, inside its active site. So isocitrate goes into the active site and it comes out alpha-ketoglutarate. And so you may be smacking your head against your palm or the wall or whatever it does when your brain is overwhelmed and saying, Master John, why are you covering all this stuff? And again, I want to come back to the fact that understanding why this was so easy, understanding it's not easy, understanding this is hard, <laughs> but understanding, but putting in the effort to overcome that and understand why it's so easy for this enzyme to basically allow oxalosuccinate to decarboxylate itself will make everything much more clear in the lesson after this, where we see that alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase has the same task of taking away a carboxyl group, but requires a massive machine containing 48 enzymes with four cofactors that include three B vitamins and others to achieve what this enzyme does with just one enzyme, allowing this to slip in and slip out like it was just making an apple pie or something like that. And understanding that ease is exactly this principle that I keep coming back to, this ability of the electron-deficient carbon at the second position to destabilize that carboxyl group is why this reaction is so 
simple compared to the next one and why it doesn't require thiamine. Now, at this point, we're all desperately in need of some simplicity. So, in net, what has happened here is that isocitrate has been converted to alpha-ketoglutarate by isocitrate dehydrogenase, releasing carbon dioxide and taking two electrons to make NADH, which will carry those electrons down to the electron transport chain. Let's talk about one more topic that sheds light on why this reaction is important. And that's because it allows the first step of interconversion between amino acids, where amino acids can enter the citric acid cycle to be burned for energy, or they can come in and leave to turn some amino acids into others and vice versa, or to turn amino acids into glucose. So let's review some of the basics about amino acids. Every amino acid has the same basic structure, where it's a carboxylic acid and it also has an amino group, which is an NH2 group. And all the amino acids that we're talking about in human nutrition are alpha amino acids, which means that if we consider the carboxyl group the most important functional group and the carbon next to it the alpha carbon, then the amino group is on the alpha carbon. So it's an alpha amino acid. The carbon, the alpha carbon is also bound to a hydrogen, and it's bound to some other side chain that we're abbreviating here as R. R could be any one of a number of different side chains. They could be simple or complex. The specific side chain is what gives an amino acid its unique identity and makes us give it a unique name. For example, glutamate has a characteristic side chain. Glutamine has a characteristic side chain. Glycine has a characteristic side chain, and so on. Almost every amino acid that we would deal with in human nutrition, with the exception of glycine, can have a corresponding keto acid if you swap out the amino group for a carbonyl group. And that's because glycine is the simplest amino acid and it just has a hydrogen here. But the others have carbons here. And if you have a carbonyl group between two carbons, then it's a ketone carbonyl. And if it's an, on the alpha position of a carboxylic acid, then that is an alpha-keto acid. If you compare the structure of alpha-ketoglutarate on the left to glutamate on the right, you'll see that they're exactly the same, except alpha-ketoglutarate has a ketone carbonyl where glutamate has an amino group. And if you look at their names, alpha-keto, glutarate refers to glutaric acid. And the glute in glutamate refers to glutaric acid, but the am in, glutarate, in glutamate refers to the amino group. So glutamate is the amino acid that corresponds to glutarate, the dicarboxylic acid, which corresponds to alpha ketoglutarate, the corresponding alpha-keto acid. So we already talked about the importance of moving the hydroxyl group from the third position of citrate to the second position of isocitrate to facilitate the decarboxylation reaction that we just talked about. But it's also important to allow the conversion of alpha-ketoglutarate to glutamate. You can trace the oxygen from the third carbon to the second to the ketone carbonyl that is eventually swapped out for an amino group. 
And that's what allows citrate to be converted to isocitrate, to alpha-ketoglutarate, and then to glutamate. The way we interconvert amino acids with their corresponding keto acids is with a family of enzymes called aminotransferases or transaminases. There are many of these, and we're only gonna talk about one now. We'll talk about these more later when we talk about burning protein for energy. But for now, we can just note aspartate aminotransferase, or AST, is the enzyme that allows the conversion of alpha-ketoglutarate to glutamate. All of the transaminases are just swapping the amino group of one amino acid onto the keto acid of some other amino acid. In doing so, the amino acid becomes a keto acid and the keto acid becomes an amino acid. All of the transaminases are dependent on vitamin B6 as a cofactor. Vitamin B6 can carry either a carbonyl group or an amino group. When it's carrying a carbonyl group, it's carrying it as an aldehyde carbonyl. So it's called pyridoxal, where AL means aldehyde. When that carbonyl is switched for an amino group, it becomes pyridoxamine. And you can see if you look at the amino group on glutamate that it could be transferred to pyridoxal with the carbonyl group being swapped, making alpha-ketoglutarate. That would make pyridoxal become pyridoxamine, and now it can donate the amino group to oxaloacetate, which makes oxaloacetate become aspartate, but takes the carbonyl group of oxaloacetate and regenerates pyridoxal, so it can repeat that cycle again. What's happened in that reaction is that glutamates become alpha-ketoglutarate and oxaloacetate has become aspartate. There's no reason you couldn't operate this in the exact reverse. You could have started with aspartate. You could have donated the amino group to the pyridoxal, making it pyridoxamine, swapping out the amino group for the carbonyl group that makes that become oxaloacetate. That would allow pyridoxamine to donate the amino group to alpha-ketoglutarate to make glutamate. Simply looking at AST, we can right away see two entry and exit points in the citric acid cycle that allow the interconversion of the keto acids that form the citric acid cycle intermediates, the things in the cycle, with their corresponding amino acids. Alpha-ketoglutarate is the corresponding keto acid of the amino acid glutamate, Oxaloacetate is the corresponding keto acid of the amino acid aspartate. You could have glutamate enter the citric acid cycle by becoming alpha-ketoglutarate, or you could also use alpha-ketoglutarate to synthesize glutamate depending on the needs of the cell. Similarly, you could have aspartate enter the citric acid cycle as oxaloacetate, or you could have oxaloacetate leave the citric acid cycle to become aspartate, again, simply depending on the needs of the cell. Now we can also mention two reasons why transaminases, also known as aminotransferases, are important from a diagnostic and health perspective. Because they all require vitamin B6, you can use intracellular transaminase activity as a marker of vitamin B6 status. The easiest way to look at this is erythrocyte transaminase activity, which is the transaminase activity inside red blood cells. 
That will be low if you don't have enough vitamin B6, and it will be normal if you have enough vitamin B6. On the other hand, these enzymes are very active in the liver, and when there's liver damage, they leak out of the liver into the blood. But they don't leak into the blood cells, they leak into the serum, which is the water-based portion of the blood that is outside of the blood cells. So if you measure serum transaminase activity, it's high when you have a disrupted liver function, particularly when there's a damage that causes the cells to leak out their contents. And it's normal when your liver's working fine. So erythrocyte transaminase activity is a marker of B6 status. Serum transaminase activity is a marker of liver function. The enzymes AST, as well as another one, alanine aminotransferase, ALT, are the main enzymes that would be measured on lab results that you'd get from your doctor and called liver enzymes or tests of liver function. The audio of this lesson was generously enhanced and post-processed by Bob Devodian of Torian Mixing, giving you strong sound and dependable quality. You can find more of his work at torianonlinemixing.com. If you want to continue watching these videos, you can find them at my YouTube at youtube.com slash chrismasterjohn, at my Facebook page at facebook.com slash chrismasterjohn, or on my website at chrismasterjohnphd.com slash biochemistry. All right, I hope you enjoyed this and found it useful. Signing off, this is Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com. You've been watching Masterclass with Master John, and I will see you in the next lesson.